The horrors of hell are so severe that Jesus said it was better for one to pluck their eyeballs out and dismember themselves rather than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. And in this episode, we are going to discuss the topic of hell. For many people, hell is a very uncomfortable subject to talk about. But if we take the evidence presented in the previous episodes of this podcast, we see that the most rational position is to conclude that God exists and the Bible is his word. Therefore, if we are to maintain our commitment to truth, then we must submit to what the Bible says about hell, no matter how uncomfortable it may be. Since the Bible has proven to be of divine origin, we can trust its statements on the afterlife. While this episode will not really touch on aspects of heaven, we are going to dive deep into what the Bible says about hell, and we'll do that by dividing this episode up into three parts, those being 1. Hell, 2. The Lake of Fire, and 3. Heresies Concerning Hell. Now, let's get into it. Before diving deep into the subject of hell, it must be pointed out that the Bible acknowledges that all human beings have an immaterial part to them, which is eternal, and this is often referred to as the soul. A clear example which supports this teaching is Jesus' statement in Matthew 10.28, when he said to fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So here we see this distinction made between one's soul and one's body. And it's clear here that though one's body may be destroyed, we shouldn't really fear that. What we should really fear is the destruction or torment of our soul. Now, some cults, such as Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses, teach a heresy known as soul sleep, which basically asserts that the soul cannot exist apart from the body, and therefore human beings are unconscious right after they die until the bodily resurrection at the end of this age. However, this is in clear contrast to what the Bible actually teaches, and one passage which demonstrates that human beings have souls that are conscious even after their body dies is Philippians 1 verses 21 to 24, where Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. So here Paul is writing to the Philippians saying that he would rather depart from his body because when he departs from his body, his soul would be with Christ, he acknowledges. He says that's far better for him, but it will be more fruitful and more necessary for the building up of the church for him to remain in his body. So here we see a distinction between the soul and the body. The eternal nature of the soul is further supported by Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 6 to 8, where he says that we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. 
we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So this, again, is a clear statement from Paul saying that while Christians are at home in their body, they are absent from the Lord. However, when Christians become absent from their body, which occurs when one physically dies, then they will be present with the Lord. So here, again, there is a clear distinction between the soul and the body. And the Bible states that when a Christian's body physically dies, their soul is conscious with the Lord. Furthermore, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he told the thief that was being crucified next to him that today you will be with me in paradise. And that can be found in Luke 23, 43. And we see here that Jesus is acknowledging today, that very day, the thief would be with Jesus in paradise. So clearly, one is not unconscious when their physical body dies. The Bible is teaching here that one's soul is eternal and it remains conscious even if the body is destroyed. Jesus' statement here is also consistent with his prediction that he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights between his death and resurrection. Obviously, Jesus is talking about his soul being in the heart of the earth for three days because his body was in the tomb during this time. Jesus' physical body did not seep through the ground into the heart of the earth. No, that is where his soul went. And this is why Peter, in his letter, implies that while Jesus' body was dead, his soul preached to the spirits in prison in 1 Peter 3 verse 19. The fact that human beings have an immaterial soul which goes directly to either paradise or torment right after they die can also be seen in Acts 7 verse 59, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18, Revelation 6 verses 9 to 10, and 2 Corinthians 12 verses 2 to 4. However, perhaps the most detailed account of what happens directly after physical death can be found in the words of Jesus himself. In Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, Jesus tells a troubling story, which is often referred to as the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It goes as follows. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and ate well every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus received evil things? But now he is comforted, and you are being tormented. And besides all this, between us and you is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from here to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from where you are. Then he said, I pray thee, Father, 
that you may send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment as well. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And that's the passage. Now, before dissecting the details of this story, it must be noted that sects, such as the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah Witnesses, will try to claim that this story is a parable and therefore we cannot trust it for determining doctrine. There are three primary problems with this claim, those being, one, the Bible never calls this story a parable like it does sometimes with other statements Jesus makes. Two, Jesus uses somebody's actual name, Lazarus, in this story, which he never does in any of his parables. And three, even if this story was a parable, it is ridiculous to believe that Jesus would purposefully include a description of immaterial souls in the afterlife if he knew that that view was false. What a misleading Jesus one would have to believe in to think that he intentionally included a falsehood about the afterlife in one of his stories. If the concept of human beings having immaterial souls was pagan, there is no way that Jesus would treat it like he does in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Therefore, the position that rejects the validity of what this story says about the afterlife fails when tested against proper hermeneutics. Now, the most striking details of this story are that the man being tormented in hell appears to know what's going on with Lazarus, and Lazarus is said to have gone to a place of comfort known as Abraham's bosom. Furthermore, though these two realms are separated by an untransversible gulf, the inhabitants of these realms appear to be able to communicate with each other. These details make sense when we study the nature of the afterlife as portrayed in the Old Testament and details of what happened at Jesus Christ's ascension. A careful reading of the Old Testament demonstrates that the souls of all humans, saved or unsaved, are described as going down to a place in the center of the earth, known in the Hebrew as Sheol. Before Jesus was crucified, the payment had not yet been complete for the sins of the world. Therefore, believers' souls could not fully be present with God because the payment had not yet been fulfilled for their sins. Because of this, everyone's soul, believer or not, was stored in Sheol which is a dimension that overlaps with the center of the earth. Sheol is defined in Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible as the world of the dead, including its accessories and inmates, and is translated into phrases such as the grave, hell, and the pit in the King James Bible. Sheol appears to have originally been divided into two sections, one section of torment, which is what we would label hell, and one of paradise, which is labeled as Abraham's bosom by Jesus in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It is interesting to note that the word Sheol most closely resembles the Greek word Hades, which is often translated as hell in English Bibles. 
and this can be seen in that the Septuagint translated 61 of the 65 appearances of Sheol with Hades. So there's a clear overlap here. Now, let's look at some Old Testament verses which concern the realm of Sheol. In the Old Testament, after Joseph's brothers lied and told Jacob that Joseph had died, Jacob stated, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. And that can be seen in Genesis 37 verse 35. The word translated as the grave in this verse is Sheol. It is clear that Jacob believed Joseph was in Sheol, and he was adamant that he will mourn his son until he joins him in death by going down into Sheol. Another example is when King Saul consulted the witch of Endor to contact Samuel's soul from the dead, as recorded in 1 Samuel 28 verse 15, which reads, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me and brought me up? Notice that Samuel stated how he was brought up from the grave. He didn't say that he was pulled down from heaven. Samuel said that he was brought up from the grave. And Samuel is listed as one of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So we can be sure that he was justified before God and therefore was a believer. Though believers who died before the crucifixion of Christ may have gone to Abraham's bosom, the New Testament appears to state that the souls of believers now rest in heaven with Jesus and the presence of God. The New Testament is clear that Jesus' soul was in Sheol, or Hades, for three days and three nights, because Jesus specifically stated, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's Matthew 12 verse 40. 1 Peter 3 verse 19 states that Jesus went and preached unto the spirits in prison. And if you see the context of this chapter, it looks like this is a clear implication that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison when he was in the center of the earth, which most likely means that he went down into Sheol and proclaimed his triumph over evil. It must be noted that the text does not say that Jesus suffered when he was in Sheol. Recall that while Jesus was breathing his last breaths on the cross, that is when he stated, it is finished, symbolizing that his work had been done for the atonement of humanity. It's also important to note that Jesus told the thief who was crucified with him that he would be in paradise that very day. So it is quite clear that Jesus did not suffer while he was in the heart of the earth. Rather, he was preaching to the spirits in prison. Regardless, the Bible strongly implies that Jesus took the souls of believers which were in Abraham's bosom up to heaven during his ascension. Ephesians 4.8 tells us that when Jesus went to heaven, he led captive a host of captives, which seems to indicate that he brought the captives who had been in Abraham's bosom with him when he ascended up to the Father's right hand. And all of the souls of those believers who had died before the crucifixion were then united with our wonderful Lord and Savior. Remember that Abraham's bosom was still a place of comfort in paradise, so believers' souls were not suffering at all before the crucifixion. That is why the Old Testament describes the souls of saints as going down after death, but the New Testament describes the souls of saints 
being in the presence of both Jesus and the Father after they die. This can clearly be seen in Revelation 6 verses 9 to 10, in which John states that while he was experiencing visions of what will take place in heaven during the end times, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? We see here that the souls of the saints are communicating directly with God in this passage, so they are clearly no longer in Abraham's bosom. John even states in Revelation 4 verse 1 that this event took place in heaven and not in the center of the earth, which is where Sheol or Hades is. With all of that said, we have now seen that hell is the place where unbelievers' disembodied souls go directly upon physical death. We will now look at a place called the Lake of Fire, which is the eternal destination of unbelievers once their souls are reunited with their resurrected bodies. One passage that clearly distinguishes between hell and the lake of fire is Revelation 20 verses 13 to 15, which concerns God's judgment of all humanity and states the following. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And remember that Hades is translated as hell in our English Bibles. As implied by Revelation 20 verses 13 to 15, the lake of fire is different than Hades because while Hades only contains disembodied souls, the lake of fire will contain souls within the resurrected bodies of every unbeliever. Just like believers will get a resurrected body, so will unbelievers. And these bodies, which every human being's soul will inhabit, will last for eternity, either in the presence of God's love or in the presence of God's wrath. And this can most clearly be seen in Daniel 12 verse 2 and John 5 verse 29. And it's important to note that the Bible makes it clear in James 2.10, Revelation 21.8, and other passages that God will judge every unbeliever by his perfect law and that his standard for moral righteousness is perfection. There are more than 600 commandments in the Bible, and failing to keep just one of these commandments results in one being found guilty before our holy God. That means committing just one sin merits an eternity in hell. Because every single human being has broken God's law by telling a lie, having lustful thoughts, etc., all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, as acknowledged in Romans 3.23. Hence, if you have not accepted the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, when you are resurrected in your eternal body and are judged by God, you will fail God's test of moral character when he reviews all of the thoughts and deeds you have committed throughout your life. That's why Revelation says that the dead will be judged according to their works, and that whoever is not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Hypothetically, 
if someone had lived their whole life without committing any sin whatsoever, they would make it into heaven because they would have no sin that needed to be punished. But because every human being has sinned, the only way for one to have their name written in the book of life is to accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. Though Hades and the Lake of Fire are technically different dimensions, every human who inhabits Hades will eventually inhabit the Lake of Fire. Because the Lake of Fire and Hades both refer to the state of unbelievers after death, the remainder of this podcast will sacrifice some technicality by referring to these two dimensions synonymously as hell. Now, we're going to talk about the purpose of hell. What was hell created for? Why did God create hell? During Jesus' explanation of the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25, he stated that he will command unbelievers to depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Though hell appears to have been originally created for the devil and his angels, the New Testament notes that God will also send human beings there as punishment for their sin. Romans 6.23 declares that the wages of sin is death, and Revelation 20 verse 14 notes that the ultimate death humanity will experience for their sin is the second death, the lake of fire. Multiple passages attest that since God's just nature requires him to punish every individual sin, the primary purpose of hell is to punish sin. Revelation 21 verse 8 supports hell's purpose as a punishment for sin by stating that the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And I think it's important to bring up here that apologists will often say things like, hell is locked from the inside or God is too loving to make people go to heaven. But I think that distracts from the primary purpose of hell as seen from scripture, which is that hell is an active punishment by God. It is correct to say that hell is separation from the love of God, but I wouldn't say that hell is separation from the very presence of God. Because in Revelation 14.10, when it's talking about people who take the mark of the beast in the end times and end up in hell, the Bible states that these same people shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ, our Passover. And so here in Revelation, it's stating that people who are burning in hell, they will be suffering in the presence of the Lamb. So hell is not some passive location that people just end up because they fail to worship God correctly. No, hell is an active punishment administered on people for eternity because of their sin. Because their sin is so wicked and God is so holy and just, he must properly punish sin. Not only is hell terrible because one has to exist for eternity in the presence of the devil and his angels, but it's also terrible because one is getting an active punishment from God bestowed on them. That is hell. That is why hell is so terrible, and that is the purpose of hell. 
The Bible consistently portrays hell as a place of torment by describing it as a realm of unquenchable fire and outer darkness where individuals suffer weeping and gnashing of teeth and their worm will not die. And for verses that describe hell like this, see Mark 9 verse 43, Matthew 8 verse 12, Luke 13 verse 28, and Isaiah 66 verse 24. The horrors of hell are so severe that Jesus said it was better for one to pluck their eyeballs out and dismember themselves rather than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. See Matthew 18.8. In order to more practically convey the severity of torment in hell, Jesus used the word Gehenna, which, according to biblical scholar Craig Evans, is an Aramaic word from the Valley of Hinnom with sinister connotations. Unlike the word Hades, which was not necessarily negative, Gehenna referred to a place of fire, death, and destruction. Furthermore, Jesus' implication that some sins are greater than others, as can be seen in John 19.11, and that judgment day will be more severe for some than for others, see Matthew 10.15, implies that there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell. Theologian Alan Gomez notes that as debauched and wicked as, for example, Sodom may have been, God holds the cities in which Jesus performed his miracles to an even greater level of accountability because of the clarity of truth that he had revealed to them. Other than these general descriptions, the Bible does not offer particularly minute details concerning the suffering in hell. One thing that is for certain, though, is that hell appears to be unimaginably dreadful for its inhabitants. When the New Testament mentions hell, Words such as eternal and unending often come up, and this can be seen in Matthew 25:41, Mark 9:43, Second Thessalonians 1:9, etc. A great example of this is Revelation 14:11, which states that concerning unbelievers during the end times who choose to receive the mark of the beast, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. This verse is very difficult to reconcile with the view of annihilationism promoted by Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses, seeing as the unsaved are described here as having no rest day or night. Likewise, biblical scholar Grant Osborne notes that with the emphatic forever and ever, it makes the point absolutely clear that this terrible punishment will be their continual eternal destiny. It must be noted that Jesus declared that the unsaved will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal in Matthew 25:46. Because the same Greek word is used to describe the duration of punishment for the unsaved as well as the duration of life experienced by the saved in this verse, it would be contradictory to label the punishment as finite, yet the life as eternal. Scholar Greg L. Blomberg notes that the parallel between eternal punishment and eternal life makes it difficult to see in the former any kind of annihilationism, even if the word eternal can refer to a qualitative rather than a quantitative attribute of life. 
Another passage which equates the destiny of the wicked to the destiny of the saved is Daniel 12.2, which states that many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. As with Matthew 25 verse 46, the annihilationist position also fails to adequately interpret Daniel 12 verse 2 because it is logically inconsistent to assume that the word everlasting is literal for the destiny of the saved, but metaphorical for the destiny of the wicked. Another strong argument for the eternal nature of hell can be found by connecting Revelation 19.20 with Revelation 20.10. Revelation 19.20 states that the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. One thousand years after the beast and false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20 verse 10 states that the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This verse reveals that the beast and false prophet are still suffering conscious torment 1,000 years after they were originally cast into the lake of fire, because that is when the devil will be cast there as well. The fact that these beings are still suffering in hell 1,000 years later completely opposes annihilationism. The Bible cannot be more clear that hell is an eternal conscious punishment due to wickedness. So we are now going to move into the last part of this podcast, which is discussing heresies concerning hell. And the two heresies we will be discussing are annihilationism and universalism. And to quickly define those terms, annihilationism is the belief that unbelievers do not suffer in hell for eternity, but rather they are burned up and basically become unconscious for eternity. So annihilation takes the eternity out of hell. So it's not conscious torment day and night without rest forever and ever, even though that's what the Bible says. Rather, annihilationists such as Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses claim that every unbeliever will simply be annihilated. Body, soul, spirit, just annihilated, totally taken out, uh, cease to exist. And so there's no consciousness for unbelievers. And universalism assumes that everybody goes into heaven. Universalists believe that God could never actually send anybody to hell. So while annihilationism takes the eternity out of hell, universalism takes the people out of hell. Now, we'll first deal with annihilationism. And we'll first deal with biblical arguments that are used by annihilationists to try to support their view. Annihilationists commonly point to verses which describe the wicked as being destroyed in attempt to support their position. Perhaps one of the most popular passages is Malachi 4 verses 1 to 3, which prophesies of Christ's second coming by declaring that the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chafe, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. Now, 
The most blatant error in the annihilationist interpretation of this passage is that the chafe and ashes refer to the state of unbelievers' bodies when Christ comes back, because obviously immaterial souls cannot be burned down into chafe. Furthermore, the Bible notes that the same people which are destroyed during Christ's second coming will also be resurrected on Judgment Day after Jesus' millennial reign on earth, as seen in Revelation 20, verses 5 and 13. As far as other verses which portray the unsaved as being destroyed in the future, to interpret these passages as meaning that the wicked will be unconscious for eternity would contradict the various indisputable passages which state the contrary. If you recall in our podcast titled, Can a Christian Lose Their Salvation?, I pointed out that in any theological debate, each side is going to attempt to use verses to support their position. In every debate that I've seen, there's always one side that has an abundance of very clear verses, and there's always another side that has a few ambiguous verses. And the basic principle of hermeneutics is that you always go with the abundance of clear verses rather than go with the ambiguous verses that may support the other side of the debate. And just like every other theological debate, that rule also applies to the debate on hell. And so as we've seen, there are so many verses that are crystal clear that hell is eternal conscious torment and it is punishment for one's sin. And if you see the verses that the annihilationists use in attempt to support their position, they're often ambiguous, they're taken out of context. I mean, as we've seen, Malachi 4 verses 1 to 3, which is one of the main verses that they try to use, isn't even referring to the souls of unbelievers. Another common annihilationist claim is to assume that since Romans 6.23 plainly says that the wages of sin is death, it is unbiblical to assert that the unsaved will be conscious forever in hell because this would mean that they have eternal life. So basically, the annihilationist equivocates the word life with the word consciousness, and they want you to play along with their word game. However, if we look at the Bible, we are supplied with a sufficient rebuttal to this attack. Jesus gave a concrete definition of eternal life in John 17 verse 3, when he stated that this is life eternal that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice that this definition of eternal life has nothing to do with consciousness, but rather is dependent upon one's relationship with God. Likewise, Adam and Eve suffered a spiritual death upon gaining the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2.17. And Christians are described as being dead in their sin before they accepted Christ in Ephesians 2 verse 1. Furthermore, the dead are described as standing before God for judgment in Revelation 20 verse 12. So with all of these verses taken into account, the annihilationist assumption that death means the absence of consciousness is unfounded and is actually contrary to the biblical evidence. The wages of sin is an eternal spiritual death, which is separation from God's love. This is why Revelation states that one experiences the second death 
when they are cast into the lake of fire to burn for eternity. The last biblical argument to be examined is the claim that eternal doesn't always necessarily mean unending, seeing as Jude 7 states that just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So the argument is that since the phrase eternal fire is used to describe the punishment administered to Sodom and Gomorrah and they are not currently burning, the fires of hell will likewise consume the wicked until annihilation. Annihilationists claim that the suffering itself is not eternal, but the consequence of the suffering is eternal. And a rebuttal to this claim can be found by noting that Jude's use of the phrase Sodom and Gomorrah is referring to the inhabitants of those cities, not the physical structures of the cities themselves. This assertion is supported by Jude's statement in the very same verse that Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, as this is obviously referring to the city's inhabitants. Therefore, because every individual in those cities were wicked and unsaved, according to Genesis 18 verses 22 to 33, they technically did suffer the vengeance of eternal fire because their souls are currently burning in hell. Biblical scholar Jean Green notes that concerning this passage, Jude does not embrace the idea that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah will be eternally annihilated, a notion that would make this statement more accommodating to modern Western sensibilities. Rather, the punishment by fire will endure and will not end, according to the perspective found in Jewish literature. That sums up the biblical arguments that annihilationists will use in attempt to support their position. However, there's often an argument from philosophy that is used not only by annihilationists, but also atheists in attempt to label a god who would torture someone for eternity as being unjust. The standard philosophical objection to the concept of an eternal hell is to claim that it is unjust to infinitely punish someone for their finite sins. For example, Ellen White, who was the prophetess who founded the modern-day Seventh-day Adventist Church in the 1800s, subscribed to this philosophical argument by stating the following, How repugnant to every emotion of love and mercy, and even to our sense of justice, is the doctrine that the wicked dead are tormented with fire and brimstone in an eternally burning hell. Aside from the multitude of biblical evidence against this claim, the common response is to consider that since all sin is against God, who is an infinite and holy being, all sin warrants an infinite punishment. Though the duration of the sin itself may be temporary, its effects are eternal. Think about if somebody goes out and murders somebody. Let's say a missionary is murdered, and if that missionary was not murdered, he would have went on and preached the gospel to hundreds of people who would have responded and been saved. But because he was murdered, the people who would have heard his words never heard the gospel, and some of them would have died without being saved, all because that missionary was murdered. So in this scenario, the murderer is committing an act that has eternal consequences because his act 
is resulting in the destruction of hundreds of people's souls. Because these people could have gotten saved by hearing the gospel, but because this missionary was murdered, the gospel was never taken to them, they were never saved, and therefore they must burn for eternity in hell for their sin. Another way to look at it is that because God is eternal and all sin is against God, every sin does have an eternal impact because you have affected an eternal being by your actions. And because of that, that warrants an eternal punishment. And so the claim that an infinite hell is unjust ultimately stems from a misunderstanding of the severity of sin on our part. Now we are going to talk about the other heresy, which is universalism, which, as noted earlier, basically states that all human beings end up going to heaven. Nobody suffers in hell for eternity. And some universalists actually say that the devil himself does not even burn in hell for eternity. Now, the Bible is clear that faith on Christ is the only way to be saved from hell. There's only one road to salvation, and that is in the name of Jesus Christ. As seen from Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, even believing that most people will be saved is unbiblical, because Jesus said to enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in there, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. So, if Jesus said that only a small percentage of humans would escape the horrors of hell, why do people believe in the heresy of universalism? I mean, this verse is clear. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. We see in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we actually see somebody burning in hell. So, why would someone even claim to believe the Bible, but then also state that they're a universalist. And I think the most obvious answer is that universalists fail to understand the truth of God's justice and therefore create a false God in their head, and this is known as idolatry. Though we have already seen that no Bible-believing Christian would believe in universalism, we will now look at some of the verses that universalists try and twist in order to fit their warped view of salvation. One common verse they use is John 12:32, in which Jesus states, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. What universalists fail to understand is that just because Jesus draws someone towards him, this does not necessarily mean that they will respond to his draw and accept the gift of eternal life. To give a personal example, God definitely worked in my life to draw me to him when I was unsaved, and I responded to his draw by accepting the free gift of eternal life by faith on Jesus Christ. In John 6.44, Jesus declares that no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. God wants all men to be saved and has given everyone enough evidence to pursue a relationship with him so that they are without excuse, as stated in Romans 1 verse 20. God can choose to draw men to him by nature, personal intervention, his word, or any other means necessary, and every human being has been drawn to the truth of God in some way or another, as demonstrated by John 12:32. 
However, it is our job to respond to God's draw and call out to him so that we may accept the gospel and be saved by his grace. Now that we have correctly interpreted John 12, 32, we'll look at other passages used by Universalists. 1 John 2, verse 2 states that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Universalists claim this passage teaches that Jesus' death offers atonement for all the sins of the world, and they are partially right on this point. The extent of the offer is universal, which means that it is available to everyone, which is exactly what 1 John 2, 2 means. However, this atonement means nothing unless a human decides to accept Jesus' atoning death and have their sins completely appeased before God. While the atonement of Jesus is universal in its offer, it is limited in its effect because it ultimately only ends up applying to those who accept it by their own free will. Universalists also claim that 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 supports their position, and that verse states that, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. However, the phrase in Christ refers exclusively to believers only, as seen by Romans 8.1, which states that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If somebody remains in Adam, then they will suffer the second death. It is only when one becomes in Christ and gets born again that they will escape the penalty of their sin. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus will be saved, which is why all of those who are in Christ are made alive. And the last verse we will look at that's a favorite of universalists is Romans 5.18, which states that by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Again, this passage does not prove universalism. Just because the free gift of salvation came upon all men, like the passage states, this means nothing unless one actually accepts this free gift. We see that all of the supposed evidence posed by universalists is extremely easy to disprove. And it should be pointed out that Satan would love for people to believe that everyone goes to heaven because then they would have no reason to believe on Christ and actually get saved. Being a Christian universalist is self-contradictory because there is no reason to fulfill Jesus' command to go and preach the gospel throughout the world. If everybody eventually ends up in heaven, then there's really no ultimate point for even being a Christian in the first place. So universalism is self-defeating. And now I want to end this podcast by pointing out something, which is that whenever there is a theological debate, both parties will present verses in attempt to support their position. Notice that the passages used by annihilationists and universalists are somewhat ambiguous and often taken out of context. However, the verses we looked over, which support hell as being eternal conscious torment, are extremely clear and abundant. The good news is that the gift of salvation is free. It has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And to obtain that, all you have to do is accept the gospel. 
You don't have to clean your life up. You don't have to start following a rigid set of rules for you to escape the eternal fiery torment of hell. All you have to do is acknowledge that you are a guilty sinner before God and accept by faith alone the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, entered our creation, lived a perfect sinless life, was crucified, buried, and rose again three days later. And if you accept this gospel by faith alone, you accept Christ's atoning sacrifice on your behalf, then you will receive eternal life and you will not have to face the second death. So that wraps up this episode. Thank you all for listening. I pray that the information in this podcast helps strengthen your faith and increase your knowledge of God and the Bible. Bye.